Um, I would say it's probably one of the most influential, one of the more in- influential texts in, in my life as I've th- thought about my, just looking back in, in verses that I kind of return to on a regular basis, I can think of three or four in this, three or four sections, and this is one of them. Um, and yet, I have learned so much about this text. Things I didn't know before, things I hadn't seen before, and really, I'm really grateful for the time I've got to spend studying it. So here's what's going to happen. This text is going to answer two questions that I've had, maybe, and maybe you have had. And the first one is this. What part do, or, or part does, I'm not sure how to say it, um, supernatural experiences play in the Christian life? So how integral are, are supernatural experiences? These, these things, these um, experiences that we have with God that, that you can't really explain, that no one can really, you have to be there, those kinds of things. Like, what parts do they play in our life as a, as a follower of Jesus? And the other question is this. Is suffering a main ingredient to spiritual, to spiritual growth? Um, I read through the, the Bible, especially um, Acts and Paul's letters, and I hear and I see suffering happening all over the place. And I'm not exactly sure what's happening over there. Hmm. Oh, yeah. There's wasps that live here, by the way. And you're suffering, okay. It's dead? Good. So how many, how many have we killed so far? I've killed five. No, three. I, I had three and you guys killed five. So that's eight, that's nine. Anybody else killed any wasps? Well, I killed like a hundred. I'm not even joking. Here? Not here, but in my dorm room. Oh, well, I'm talking about here. One hundred. He's killed one hundred. Okay. So there are things among us. And we have no idea where, where they are. They are thorns in our ceiling. Anyway. All right, so the second question is, is suffering kind of like a main ingredient for spiritual growth? Um, this was actually a question that was turned in last week. Am I suffering enough? Um, based on our text, based on you know, what we read in the Bible, that's a decent question. That's a really good question. So I'm excited to talk about those two things. I need someone to read close. Any, yeah, Jared. Jared's going to read for us. Start at verse 12, just read verse 1. Is this a competition between the... I get it. I get it. All right. Yes. I must go on boasting. Though there is nothing to be gained by it, I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. Okay. So what you need to know is, if you look back at verse 30, if I must boast, I will boast of things that show my weakness. Paul, Paul seems, to, the tone of this text isn't, man, I, guys, I'm excited to boast about some things to you, and I can't wait to tell you about it. Um, the, the context of this and the, the tone of this is more just Paul going, all right, you guys have pushed me to it. You know, I, I don't want to have to do this, but I'm going to do this. And he even says, um, he says, there's nothing to be gained by it. So Paul's kind of letting us know. He's giving us this cue that this, what I'm about to tell you, I'm not like crazy excited to tell you. I'm not going to, into this to emphasize something that's like profoundly important and that you need to know and that's going to bring all kinds of evidence to why you should trust my ministry. It do, that's not, does, does not seem to be the case um, with what he's going to say. So read 2 through 6. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. If 
know that this man was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will not boast, but on my own behalf, oh wow. On behalf of this man, I will boast, but on my own behalf, I will not boast, except of my weaknesses. Though I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain from it, so that no Okay, so Paul starts off and he says, I'm going to tell you about some, uh, a man who, in Christ, okay, has this great experience um, lifted up to the third heaven, this out-of-body experience 14 years ago. So who is this person? Now, I had always um, had this understanding that it was Paul. And so when I first started studying it, I go, wait a minute, does, is it Paul? I mean... How many of you thought when you first read this, thought, is Paul talking about himself or is Paul talking about someone else? Anybody? Oh, that's, that's, two, that's two different things. How many of you, how many, both. No, how many, of you, how many of you think he's talking about someone else when you first read it? Kind of the natural reading of the text. He's talking about someone else. Okay? And then how many of you, kind of your natural reading was he's talking about himself? Okay. Was that based on influence from outside or did you kind of conclude that? Those of you that thought it was Paul, did you conclude that by like reading the, the text and the context? My text says I. Your text says I? Yes. What do you have? I, say, I know this man, it says I. I, I did this? What, what version do you have? NLT. Yeah, yeah, of course. <laughs> so, you know, the new lousy translation. No, um, no. So, so, so what's happening in the NLT is, that's actually, that's a really good actually lesson for us is to go, the, the, in the Greek it doesn't, lit, it doesn't say I did this, it says I know a man who did this. Um, but what they're doing is they're interpreting that. They're, they're going, okay, this is what Paul's saying. So the NLT is a kind of a, is, is basically a paraphrase. And the difference between a translation, verse by verse translation, and no, word word-for-word uh, for word translation and verse-for-verse verse, like translation is, is the difference between like NLT and ESV. Or NASB would be another word-for-word. Word. They're, they're, they're looking at the word and they're translating that word and then they're trying to put those, that word into a sentence. And a lot of times, if you notice the ESV, the NASB, it's choppy. It's, it's, like, it's confusing and hard to read. That's because in the Greek, that's the way it is. Um, the NLT and even the NIV a little bit will smooth that out, right? We'll make it like a, a, a little easier to understand sentence. And, and with it, especially with paraphrasing, when they're just taking um, a verse and they're going, okay, what is Paul saying? And they just, they just kind of say it in a new way. That's what's happening here. So they're, they're kind of interpreting it. So anyway, I set out and I'm like, I don't know if it's Paul. I really don't. Um, and so I started reading around and, and, and I concluded that it's Paul. Um, I kind of got back to where I had originally started, but, but in that process, I got to kind of see what's happening here, and something really kind of cool jumped out to me. So let me just walk through why I think it's, two reasons why I think it's Paul. Um, one is the larger context. So if you look at 11, um, 30 through, through 33, you see Paul um, starting into this whole section, and he says, if I must boast, I'll boast of things that show my weakness. Okay, so he's getting ready to talk about something that shows his weakness. Verse 32, at Damascus, the governor of, under King Aretas, 
was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me, but I was let down in a basket through a window in a wall and escaped in his hands. So Paul talks in first person about an experience he has, and when we read that, we go, oh, that's cool. Paul escaped from Damascus. He was let down in a basket. That's so cool. He is, you know, we think, that's crazy. I can't imagine that happening to me. You've got to think in terms of their, their context, the, the, the audience that Paul's writing to, that would not have been seen as like a, a cool thing. Then I'm like, Paul, that's not a good example. You had to hide in a basket. You're not, that's not, that doesn't show you as a powerful man that we should listen to and respect. You're hiding in a basket. You're, you're barely escaping. You're, you're an enemy of the, of the king. Like That's not showing your power. That's showing your weakness. And so Paul, in first person, talks about weakness. And then in 12, 1 through 6, um, Paul, I believe, is talking third person. It's, it's like, why is he talking in third person? But I, I think that's what he's doing. Third person. He talks about a powerful or supernatural experience. Now, why is that powerful or supernatural? It's because, again, in, in, this, in this audience who these false teachers were coming in and saying, don't listen to Paul. He's, he's weak in person. He's nothing when he shows up. He's real big and, and bad in his writings, but when he shows up, he's, he's nothing. Um, he doesn't, even, he doesn't even get paid for what he does. He doesn't even ask for anything. He just kind of shows up and serves and does his thing and then leaves and he writes these letters to us. And um, so that's, that's not powerful in their context. And so what he does is he starts to describe a powerful experience he has. Um, and he does it in third person. Okay? And I think, I think that's significant. Here in a second, you'll see why I think. But... In 7 through 10, he goes back to first person and he describes again something that was, was to show his weakness, this, this thorn in his flesh. And we'll talk about what that is, but this something that, that plagues him, that, that follows him, that harasses him. And again, that's not a, something to brag about. That's not something that he should. So you have these, this context where first person weakness, third person powerful experience that Paul has, and then back to first person. So that's, this is, to me, the first reason why I think it's Paul. The second reason is um, verse 7. And this is really maybe more of the kicker than, than the first one. Verse 7 says, So to keep me from becoming conceited, because of the surpassing great greatness of the revelations. So, a, you know, and then a thorn was given to me in my flesh. So, so, if you would ask me, before we started studying 2 Corinthians, if you were to ask me where this, where does Paul talk about this great revelation, being, you know, out-of-body experience, being taken up into third heaven? I said, uh, I don't know, 1st or 2 Corinthians, somewhere in there. But if you would ask me, where does Paul talk about thorn in the flesh? I'd be like, 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 10. I know exactly where it is. Never knew those two things were right next to each other. And then never knew that there's a direct connection to them. So Paul says, I had this great revelation. And I don't want to talk about it in a way, because why? Because when I talk about it in a way, look at verse 6. If I were to talk about it in this way, um, at the end of verse 6, I don't want to do it that way. I don't want to talk about it in first person, essentially, um, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me, or hears from me. 
Paul's like, I, I, listen, I don't want the attention that this, that this would bring. But you guys talk about these great things. Listen, I have great, powerful experiences too. I don't want to, but I'm going to talk about it in a third-person way to show that, listen, they're there, but I don't want to highlight it. And in verse 7 he says, I was given this thorn in the flesh to keep me from being conceited because of this great revelation that I've had. I've never, I never knew the direct connection that that had. So, um, read. No, we already did that. So here's, here's, here's what I, I, was really helpful for me. Here's what kind of jumped out in this whole idea of, of Paul talking in third person about this supernatural experience he had. So think about this. What does Paul think about these, these things? What does he say about these, these experiences? And in verse 1 he says, there's nothing to be gained by it. In other words, Paul's saying he doesn't think it adds to his ministry. This, this kind of experience that he had doesn't seem, Paul doesn't seem to be saying, um, hey, I want to tell you about it so that you'll trust me more. Paul's like, hey, I've experienced this, but I don't want to brag about it. So I'll brag about someone else experiencing it. Um, and he's saying it to, to basically say, this, this doesn't add to my ministry. This kind of experience doesn't add to, to me being an apostle, or me being someone you should trust. Um, he also says in verse 6, so that no one may think he's more, make think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. And so he actually, I think, believes that, that these kinds of things might cause people to think more of him than they should. Might... Um, People might get more excited about those experiences than, than about the truth of the gospel that he is bringing to, to them. So that, I think, is fascinating. I think that's really interesting. Because um, I don't know about you, but I, I want those things. Like, I want to experience those things. And, I, and, I, and there's been a few times where I've had a few things um, that have happened that I can't explain that are... Um, I, I mean, I remember an experience I had, and it literally took me from being in this kind of winter season to experiencing spring for the first time in about a year and a half. And I remember, I remember that feeling. And I remember like coming out of this dark time, this funk that I was in, I felt like I was in for a long time. And I remember coming out of it, and it was this, this weird experience. And I remember wanting to talk about it to the people that I knew. And then after some time went on, um, I remember God saying, listen, that's great, but let's talk more about what I did in you than, than, than what you experienced in this. And I, and I wonder if that's a little bit of what Paul's, Paul's doing here. So what part do supernatural experiences play in the Christian life? I think the answer is it's part of the Christian life. There's no doubt about that there's a supernatural element involved. Um, you know, you and I can't come to Christ by our own rationale. The, the Spirit has to reveal Himself to us. There has to be some sort of element where God opens our heart and our eyes to, to His reality. Um, I don't think there's any way to, you know, get around that. But it's not, um, it's not supernatural experiences only, and it's not rationalism it's on, only. It's, there's, I think both of those things bring tension to the, to the other, which is, I think, pretty interesting. Um, I think just when, when someone might think, I mean, and there's, there's different, um, 
denominations that may emphasize different things, but I think this, this, that God allows supernatural things to take place, and yet God is very clear about um, faith in Him and, and, our, and right thinking about Him. Um, but all of it, for Paul, the whole point was Jesus and His gospel. The point of the supernatural experiences, the point of um, faith in Him and right thinking about Him and, and orthodoxy. Um, well, it was all about Jesus. So what about this thorn? Read 7 and, and 8. Okay, so this is a really interesting text. There's several things we know about it, five things I'm going to describe here. The first one is this, that it was given to Paul, we've talked about this, to keep him from being conceited. Okay, and again, notice that like this thorn was in direct connection to the previous experience that he had. Um, we assume this is by God. Why do we assume that? Well, there seems to be this positive, like redemptive element involved in this thorn. Like there's some, God seems to be orchestrating this in order to bring some sort of redemptive element, to bring, to bring some sort of positive um, response in Paul to display God's power. Second thing is we know that it was in the flesh. Um, I don't know what that means, to be honest. I don't, because the answer to that, what does it mean by in the flesh, is the answer to what is this thorn? Okay, and I'll get to that here in a second. So I'll say I'll state them real real quickly. It's one of three things, and really it's one of two. But it's one of three things. Um, it's either a physical illness, it's either a uh, physical opposition that he experienced, or it's like mental anguish or psychological anguish. So I'll get to that in a second. Third thing is, it acted as acted as a messenger of Satan. Okay. So how is it given by God and then also a messenger of Satan? Um, in, in the Greek, it, the word is used and it points to this possessive nature that Satan has on this thing, whatever it is. Um, and I think, I think what that means is, ultimately, paradoxically, um, God is the giver of this thing and Satan is using this thing to try to, to, try to get at Paul. And Paul is recognizing both here. He's recognizing the ultimate gift that this is, which we'll talk about here in a second, why he thinks it's a gift. But then he's also recognizing the, the way in which Satan is trying to use it um, on him. Fourth one is, it beat him repeatedly. What? Yeah, so the word harass, I'm not sure. What does it say in the NLT? It doesn't... Um, Verse 7, messenger of Satan to harass me is what the ESV says. What is your messenger of Satan to, to what? Torment? Yeah. So the word literally means to strike with a hand or a fist, to get punched. It's, a, it's, a very, it's, a, it's like a violent term. Um, it's used whenever Jesus was spit upon and it says he was struck in the face when he was before Caiaphas. Um, 
It says, struck, struck him with their fists, is, is what it says about Jesus. It's the same word, struck. So, there, there is a, <clears throat> he's describing a kind of a violent act that's taking place. Now, even though that's what the word means, most believe, just like torment or harass, most believe it's a figurative idea. Paul's not saying this, this thing is literally punching him. But he's saying this is a this is something that is repeated. This is something that is ongoing, and it's violent uh, against him at some level. Um, that's four things. The fifth thing is this, and this is what I found fascinating. I never really never really stopped to think about this. Is that Paul pleaded with the Lord to take it away? Like, yeah, of course he did. You see, plead three times. Well, what does the three times mean? Well, we don't know if it's it, literally he just asked three times, take it away, take it away. Take it away? Okay. You know, if it was that, I doubt it. it, it if, if, it was ex- if it was exactly three things, most likely it was like Paul got to this point and pleaded with the Lord, take it away. And that happened three times as Paul dealt with this, this thorn. He's, he's like, okay, Lord, please take it away. Or if, if three is more of a figurative term to say, hey, I, I pleaded with the Lord and over and over and over. Um. But it shows that, this is what it shows. It shows that Paul doesn't assume that suffering is God's plan. Like, the, the reason that Paul would pray for it to be removed is Paul, Paul initially didn't say, yes, I'm suffering. Thank you, Lord. He says, God, take it from me. And I, I just think, find that kind of fascinating. Um, it shows that suffering isn't the point, Really. Um, and that, in this case, it, it's something that God uses. So, so here is the three options, and I'll get back to that idea a little bit later. But here's the three options of what the thorn is. I told you physical illness, um, either resulting from some kind of sickness that he got or, or beatings that he took, right? So Paul took some beatings. Um, it, it, and, and some even, I've even heard this, when Paul was blinded on the road to Damascus, and when Jesus, you know, blinded him, and then God eventually re- uh, removes the scales from his eyes, there's, there's a, one of the letters where he ends by saying, this is Paul, notice this is Paul, and look at, look at how big of words I use. You know, look, at, look at how big my handwriting is. Um, and some think the reason that is is because he was blind at some level. Still had a little bit of blindness left over from the, you know, Jesus blinding him on the road to Damascus. So, so there's, there's all these different things. It could have been an, il- an illness that he just continues to have with him. Um, it could have been something left over from being beaten. So he walks with a limp. I don't know. It's in his side. I don't know. Or it's his blindness, you know, whatever. So physical illness, opposition. Um, we know that in this, in this book there are false, um, false prophets that are kind of opposing him. We also know in others... In other letters, there are these guys named the Judaizers that are Jewish men who are coming to kind of attack Paul and make, make sure all of Paul's converts get circumcised and follow these, these dietary laws or trying to make all the, the Gentiles Jewish again. And so Paul calls them the Judaizers. So we know he had opposition. And the mental anguish could be, he already talks about anxiety that he has for the different churches. Um, it could be some form of depression and it could be um, just, just this this over-anxious need and desire to plant more churches and to, to share the gospel more. Who knows, right? So, 
like I said, most likely it's two of them, and it's the first two that are, that are the most, most widely accepted. In fact, I, Drew and I typically use two commentaries um, when we're studying through this, and one commentary believes it's the first one, physical illness, and then the other commentary believes it's, it's um, opposition. And I'd never really seen a strong evidence for opposition until, until now. And so let me, give you, let me give you evidence for both. Okay, I don't have... Um, Alec was trying to pressure me into pick one, and I, and I really can't. Depends on what I'm reading is what I'm going with. I'm like, that sounds pretty good. I'll go with him. Um, that sounds pretty good. I'll go with him. Here's, the, here's three evidences for physical illness. Um, it seems to have happened directly after the, the vision 14 years ago and was ongoing in Paul's life. So that, that makes more sense if it's, if it's some sort of physical thing that happened to him, some sort of illness or some sort of result of a beating or whatever. Um, and Paul's kind of just seen it as a, a connection to this vision I had and this thing keeps me humble. Um, the, the, Paul's use of the word flesh, he seems to be talking about his body. And so it makes more sense that would be uh, a, an illness or something. And it's also singular. It's, it's, not, it's one thing. And, and, and we know that Paul had many different types of opposition working against him. So that's evidence for the physical illness. Here's evidence for the opposition. And this one has really, really strong evidence. The word thorn is used in the Old Testament um, several times. I'll read a couple verses that uh, are, are talking about enemies of Israel. Okay? So here's Numbers 33, verse 35. Numbers 33, 35. Sorry, 33, 55. It says this, But if I do not drive out the inhabitants of the land, if you do not, so God's talking to Israel, if you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land um, from before you, then those of them whom you let remain shall be barbs in your eyes and thorns in your sides, and they shall trouble you in the land where you dwell. Thorns in your side. That's like direct quote. Uh, Ezekiel 28. And for the house of Israel, there shall be no more briar to pick or a thorn to hurt them among their neighbors who have treated them with content. So, Paul's, again, or Ezekiel's talking about Israel who's in exile and he's having these people that are treating them with content and refers to them as thorns. Okay? So that's one reason. Um, the... The, very, the direct context uses this idea of messenger of Satan, or actually servants of Satan, in chapter 11, verses 14 and 15. If you look at that, it talks about these, these men, these people who are opposing him. He kind of refers to them as servants of Satan. And here he talks about this thorn being a messenger of Satan. So there's a, that's just a few verses away. That's kind of interesting. And then you have the whole overall context of the book, where Paul is dealing with this opposition from these, false teachers. So, again, it's like Drew and I talked about, like this, the, the, the text and the context, you know, the words themselves used, it, it just, if I, if it seems like it could be opposition, but, but all those other reasons, like happening 14 years ago, it's, it happened to his body, it's a singular thing. Um, anyway, makes it interesting. So, read verse 9. Okay, 
So Jesus' answer, he pleads with the Lord to take it away. And Jesus' answer, I think, tells us a lot about Jesus. Tells us that Jesus' first priority isn't Paul's health or safety or comfort. So take that, moms um, and dads, but a little more moms. Um, so I, I just find that fascinating. Jesus said, no, I'm not going to take it away. And, uh, and Paul's, the, the way Paul handles this, I think, tells us a lot about Paul. So, so <clears throat> listen to how he handles bad circumstances, okay? He has this, this, this circumstance, this experience that's a trial, that's a burden, that's a, that he's suffering at some level, some kind of affliction, whatever, okay? I assume you've had those kind too. Something's maybe not the same, definitely not the same. But if you have had the same, t- tell me so that I'll know what the thorn is. That'd be helpful. Um, so he has this experience, and then he asks for what he wants. So Paul asks for what he wants, okay? Recognizing that God is a giver of good gifts, recognizing that God is his Father, so he asks for what he wants. Paul, or God gives him an answer. In this case, it's no. And then Paul's response is, okay, then I'm going to resolve to glorify God with that answer. I'm going to resolve to glorify you in that answer. Right? So the answer could have been yes. I'll remove it. Paul says, great. Then I will proclaim how good you are for healing me or for giving me victory over this at some level. In this case, he says no. So Paul says, okay, then I'm going to glorify you in this, this suffering, this weakness, this trial, this tribulation. So he says, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest upon me. That's a fascinating phrase. Christ's power resting on Paul. Um, so read verse 10. So, is suffering the main ingredient to spiritual growth? Or should I be suffering more? Uh, and I, I truly believe the answer is no. Um, and, and so this is a question that I've, been, I've had for years. That not just through this, but through, through some other things that we've done. Last, last fall, our um, staff got away and we talked about the place of suffering in ministry and and I wrestled with whether or not, man, it just feels like I read, I read Acts. I see what these guys go through. I look at my life and I go, I am not going through that. It's, there's not a one-to-one correlation here. And, and then in reading this, even though this is talking about a suffering that Paul's going through, I really believe the point isn't suffering. Um, I think Paul's goal is to glorify God regardless of his experiences and his circumstances. Which sounds so simple when I say it that way. But it's like this answer has just really confirmed some things for me. Um, anyway, so I won't, I won't go off. I'll leave some of that for Drew. He's going to talk more about this. But essentially, this is what I think is happening. Paul's asking, God, do you want to be glorified by removing this thorn? Or do you want to be glorified by making me keep it? And Jesus says, you're going to keep it. And Paul says, all right then. I'm going to glorify you in it. 
And that is incredible. I will be content, he says, in it. And he says profoundly, when I am weak, I am strong. What is he saying? When I am weak, I am strong. What he's saying is that ultimately when he's weak, he's more dependent on Christ and Christ's power is more prevalent in his life. When, when, when I am weak, then I am dependent. And when I am dependent on Christ, then, then His power is more prevalent and more at work in and through me. And I think that's what He means. So let me pray and then we'll take a break. God, thank You for this text and thank You for the reminder of, first of all, that You are sovereign and in control that you know what's best, that you know the best way for us to bring you glory. God, help us to be content in our circumstances. Help us to to recognize what's going on. Help us to ask you for what we want, trusting that you can provide and do all things. And help us to rest in whatever the answer is. And help us to resolve to bring you glory regardless. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll get going. Um, In 538 BC, roughly around the time that King Cyrus issues a decree, maybe it's that exact year, issues a decree um, that says that all of the Israelites... Um, actually, all the peoples that have been captured by the Babylonians and by the Assyrians. Um, the Persian king Cyrus, who's now in control, says they're allowed to go home, fulfilling prophecies that Jeremiah had made um, like some 70 years earlier. At that same time, um, further east, way further east, um, this man by the name of Siddharthit um, sits down under this tree in Bodhgaya, India, to meditate. And, and his goal, he had been practicing this for some time, and his goal was to achieve a certain level of clarity or enlightenment, enlightenment about what reality was. And as the story goes, when he sat down there trying to meditate, trying to get to this deeper level, trying to understand reality as it is, the chief demon by the name of Mara came to him to try and break his concentration, to try and break him from this. And he tried a number of different things. One of the things is he, he caused all these apparitions, like these visions of these demons coming to attack him while he was sitting under the tree, trying to get him to be fearful, trying to get him to be afraid so that he would stop. But he pressed through that and continued to focus, continued to meditate. And at another point, Mara brought his three beautiful daughters, the demon, demon daughters, in front of this man to try and get him focused on them, to try and tempt him, to try and bring him towards lust. If fear's not going to work, maybe lust will work, and try and distract him by that, but he still didn't do it. And, and eventually, Siddhartha pulls all the way through this uh, and, and makes his way all the way through with a little bit of help from the mother goddess who kind of appears up out of nowhere from the earth to kind of um, claim him and, and all this. And so he makes his way through and he achieves what he's been going for this whole time, which is perfect enlightenment. His ability to understand all things, from that point on, he is referred to as the enlightened one, or the exalted one, or the conquering Buddha. And and Buddhism is born out of this, out of this claim to a vision or a revelation that this man had sitting under a tree. 
Many years later, in 610 AD, a man by the name of Muhammad is sitting in the middle of a cave um, that uh, he's, he goes to every year around this certain time, and, and he goes there to, to kind of meditate and worship God, and while he's in this cave, it is said that the angel Gabriel appears to him, um, perhaps in a dream. And, and in this dream, Gabriel begins to speak to him and tries to get him to read this text. And Muhammad says he can't read. And Gabriel basically kind of grabs a hold of him and says, read it. And he says, I can't. And three times this thing happens. And finally, he's kind of able to do this. And what those words are is the, the first words of the Quran that were ever kind of brought into this world were brought in this moment. And Muhammad goes back and reveals this to his wife and his uncle. And thus, the religion of Islam is born. And it is all based on the vision and the revelation that this man Muhammad claimed to have in a cave in 610 A.D. Uh, Many years after that, a young man by the name of Joseph, Joseph Smith, walks into the woods in the middle of New York and he says that he's trying to figure out what's the right church to join. There's these different denominations in America calling for his attention and he can't figure out which one to be a part of and he says he's trying to pursue God and all of a sudden two figures appear before him. The Father, the Heavenly Father in bodily form because he has a body. According, this, this is how Mormons know that he has a body is because of this moment right here when the Heavenly Father appears before Joseph Smith, and, and next to him is the Son, and they talk to Joseph Smith. First of all, God says, this is my beloved Son here, and then he tells Joseph, there is no church that has proper doctrine. All have gone astray, and I'm calling you to bring people back to the truth. And thus, Mormonism is born when Joseph Smith walks out of those woods and says, I had a vision, I had a revelation, and he'll have many more to come where the angel Morani will visit him and give him um, the tablets or tell him where to find the tablets so that he can translate the Book of Mormon and all these things and vision after vision every time there's something new. And, And thus Mormonism is born and thus Joseph Smith is lifted up and thus Muhammad is lifted up and thus Buddha is lifted up to this high stance above them or above most of humanity. Around 40 AD, a guy by the name of Saul is sitting somewhere probably in Syria when all of a sudden he has this, he doesn't know. He doesn't know if it was in the body or not, if it was just a vision or if it was a real thing, but he gets caught up into the third heaven as the Jews, um, the Jewish kind of understanding, they, they talk about the sky as heaven. So you have the first heaven, which is just the firmament where the birds are like flying, the, the clouds and all that stuff. And then you have the second level, which is the stars above that space. And then beyond that, what they would for, refer to as paradise or the place where God dwells, the third heaven. And Paul is caught up there, and then he walks away from that vision, and he tells nobody for 14 years. From what we can tell, never mentions it. In all his letters, in all his preaching, never talks about this thing, except for this one time, and and reluctantly and vaguely at that, never chooses to talk about these things, which would seem odd. It would seem to be incredibly helpful for building his credibility and his authority to be able to claim that he actually went to heaven, that God called him up and said things to him that no other human beings are even allowed to hear. That would, that would go 
That, that would go like miles and miles in his favor in, in letting people see him as authoritative, letting them see him as spiritual, letting them see as someone that is credible that they want to trust. Paul had the ability in any party at any time to one-up anybody else's story, <laughs> right? There's nobody. Uh, Caleb went to New Zealand this last summer, right? So anytime you're walking around, Caleb's got the ability to throw out, well, you know, I did backpack around New Zealand for a little bit. And if Paul were in here, he'd be like, ah, that's, that's cool. I did walk around heaven for a little bit. <laughs> so um, uh, Emily got to go skydiving last uh, month, which is sweet. And she's got pictures of all this stuff. And if Paul was hanging out, he'd be like, oh, you only made it up to the first heaven? Oh, that's cool. <laughs> I went to the third one, so, you know. Like, there's, there is no, no, nobody who can top Paul's stories. There's nobody that can top Paul's visions and his revelations, and yet he does not want to grab onto them. He does not want to display those. Why? Side note, I find it comforting and very fascinating that virtually every other ministry or every other religion starts with a man going off by themselves and then claiming that they had a vision that nobody has the ability to prove or disprove. That's what their whole vision, this is why you believe in Mormonism. This is why you believe in Islam. This is why you believe in Buddhism, because I had this vision, and you have no ability to prove me wrong in that. Christianity bases nothing on the vision of a man. Nothing that you cannot prove or disprove. It is built around the public death of the founder, and then the public, at least somewhat public, there are witnesses 500 at one time, resurrection of this man, witnessing the resurrection of this man. It's built around something that could have easily been disproven by someone going and grabbing the body, the Jewish authorities, grabbing the body and producing it and saying, there. And yet nobody did that. It's convenient for most other religions to be built around something that is not falsifiable, that you cannot prove or disprove. Christianity doesn't operate that way. Um, and Paul does not try to give us new doctrines to believe, does not try to tell you why you ought to follow him out of these things. He doesn't make anything really out of his vision, except for that it was really amazing and something that was cool for him to experience. That's about it. Why? Here's why, and Scott has already mentioned it to you, because this vision was irrelevant to whether or not he had apostolic authority. Didn't, that, that meant nothing. It didn't prove that he, that he had more to offer than these other people. It didn't actually even prove that he was more spiritual. I heard one guy say, actually, if there's anything that would be foolish to boast about, surely this would be it because Paul had nothing to do with it. You know that? that like your spiritual experiences, the things that you might get most excited about your own spirituality may have nothing to do with you, might just simply be a gift that you got given during a worship service that you were a part of, or during somebody laying hands on you or praying for you. And Paul says, that's irrelevant to my apostolic authority. That's the first reason I'm not going to talk about it. Here's the second reason, because as humans, we think just the opposite, that it's completely relevant to my authority, that's completely relevant to my credibility, because it, that it makes me who I am. We get caught up, as Scott said, with the man and the vision, rather than the God who gives it. And this appears to be exactly what was happening with the false teachers who loved to go around and flaunt not just their heritage, not just their ability to speak, but the spiritual experiences that they had had. 
the amazing things that they had taken part of so people could go, wow, and be amazed by them and be impressed by them. And yes, that's the kind of guy I want to follow, the kind of things he's seen, the kind of things he's experienced. And apparently that temptation is there for Paul too. Paul totally gets that. He totally gets why you would be fascinated by that. That's why he says in verse 7, because of that vision, because of that revelation, this thorn got given, me, given to me to keep me from being conceited to keep me from self-exaltation, from getting too caught up with myself and too fascinated by myself. So Paul gets that. And so instead, he chooses to boast in, he chooses to highlight, he chooses to focus on his weaknesses. And again, that seems odd because that method of talking about yourself runs counter to everything that we're told to do today. In about a month's time, a handful of you are going to walk across a stage over there on campus, and you're going to do the little hat thing and the tassel thing and all of that. But um, before you do that, there's going to be someone who's going to stand up on stage and tell you how important you all are. And he or she is going to tell you that you're world changers. And he or she is going to tell you that you have everything you need to succeed within you. That you've been given this education. That you've got the drive. That you've got the heart. And that you have what it takes to succeed. To make something of yourself. To do something great and important in this world. And go out and do it. And then you're going to go and apply for jobs if you haven't already started doing that or internships in which you've been told over and over again it is important for you to put your best foot forward. Don't, don't go out there looking like an idiot. Don't say something in the interview. Don't put anything in the application that's going to make you look dumb. When you show up, look your best. Do everything you can to, to show off your strengths and hide or minimize your weaknesses as best you can. The world we live in of social media thrives on one's ability, and the world we live in of social media is your world. It is the reality for most of us that, that really drives a lot of our social interactions, what we are, and it thrives on one's ability to, to brand yourself, to market yourself to the world around you. And there are actually a lot of areas in the world, maybe you could even say most, where it is actually like not bad to do that, where it's good and right to hide your weaknesses or rid yourselves of your weaknesses. I was talking with uh, Jake just today about like, what's, what, what would be like the military perspective on this passage right here, talking about weakness? And, and the truth is like in the military or in sports or whatever else, like you were only as strong as kind of the cliche, like a chain is only as strong as what? weakest link like we can't have weakness on this team we can't have weakness in this unit because that will hold us all back and so we maximize our ability by being able to correct that weakness to cut that weakness or to hide that weakness in as much as possible and that's the right thing to do in the military and that's the right thing to do in sports and there's a lot of areas where it is the right thing to do. And yet here, Paul says he doesn't hide his weakness or try to get rid of it. He boasts in it. He highlights it. He delights in it, maybe even it seems like sometimes, at least in talking about it. And the question is why? First, it's important to remind ourselves of two things that Scott mentioned to you that are really important. Uh, or at least I, th I think he touched on this first one. By weakness, Paul means... A situation 
a condition or a circumstance in our lives that we want to change but can't. Some sort of hardship, something that you are facing in you, a physical ailment or oppression or something that you want to change because it's making things difficult for you, because it's making you frail, because it's wearing you down, because it shows how small you are. Something that you want to get rid of, but you, you can't. You don't have the ability to do. Either because you don't have the strength to rid it, or you can't you know, heal yourself, or because Jesus tells you to love your enemies, and so you, you can't actually like treat those people like they're treating you. But for whatever reason, it's something that you can't change. It is not when Paul talks about a weakness that he would boast in. He is not talking about um, his tendency towards a certain sin. He's not talking about temptation or a propensity towards certain immoral acts. So Paul does not lift up his tendency to get caught up in lust. That's not how that works. Lust is not something he boasts about. His desire for greed is not something that he sees as a weakness that needs to be shown off. No, that's a sin that needs to be gotten rid of. Not a weakness that needs to be shown off. Um, there's a difference. Sometimes our weaknesses, the frailties we experience, the difficulty that we have might lead us towards sin if we're not careful. So if Paul is experiencing a physical ailment of some kind, some sort of handicap or so, some sort of illness, if he's not careful, that might lead him to self-pity. That might lead him to selfishness or towards bitterness, right? But the, the ailment itself is not a temptation or a wickedness. And then the second thing, this, Paul, this Scott did stress, that Paul does not seek weakness. He actually prays against it. Okay, So it's important to clarify those two things up front. So now we get to the question, how is it that Paul can highlight this? How is it specifically that weakness can actually be a good thing? In a world where weakness is never seen as a good thing, how is it that weakness can actually be a good thing for us? Three answers that are all interconnected and overlapping. All of these answers touch right up against each other and overlap to some degree. Number one, weakness can actually be a good thing for us because weakness works against pride. That's what Paul says. I got this to keep me from being conceited to keep me from being prideful, which, biblically speaking, is the worst possible condition you can find yourself in. The condition of pride. The condition of conceits. To think of yourself more highly than you ought. Over and over again, the Bible says, in these words or something like them out of James 4.8, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. That if you are proud and if you are prideful, the maker of heaven and earth is against you. And if you are humble, no matter how flawed you may be, God gives grace to you in that. And that is not just James, that is 1 Peter, that is Proverbs, that is Luke, that is Matthew, that is Psalms. That is all through the scriptures that this principle rings forward that in your pride, God is against you. And so anything that would drive you away from your pride is a blessing. There is nothing that Satan will not use, even the good things, maybe especially the good things, to try to undo you. Even something as awesome as an amazing spiritual experience you had during a worship service might be something that the enemy will try to use to undo you, to cause you to 
to, to find pride in what you got to experience. Some great deed, some great good thing that you've done for, for other people in your life, for your church, some missions trip that you went on that the enemy might not try to use and turn that into an opportunity for pride. And that is the most dangerous thing that you could ever find yourself being in. Charles Spurgeon is one of the most uh, famous preachers of all time. He's a famous preacher in London in the 1800s. He's known as the Prince of Preachers um, because he was such an incredible communicator because in a time when um, many in kind of the church were starting to go a more liberal route, that is saying we're not really sure if we can trust the Bible, we believe science more than miracles, we don't know if you know the resurrection really even happened, and we don't know if the Bible is really like completely true, those things. Charles Spurgeon was preaching and, and preaching that the Bible can be trusted, that it is true. He fought for those, and he influenced thousands of preachers through the years by his teaching, by his style of preaching, by the way he went about his ministry. He's considered one of the great Christian leaders of the last couple centuries. Um, many people did not know at that time, though, that Charles Spurgeon was also hounded by bouts of depression over and over again wrestling with that in his life. He was also publicly ridiculed often because of his stances on the Bible and how foolish it looked to you know, modern sensible men at that time. And his wife, because of illness and because of a botched surgery trying to cure that illness, spent much of her life disabled to the point that she wasn't able to take care of herself. And so in the middle of his ministry and in the middle of his depression, in the middle of all that, Charles Spurgeon spent many hours taking care of his wife, trying to help her along. And Spurgeon has this statement about weakness in our lives. And this is what he says. My witness is that those who are honored by their Lord in public, that is, who, who have kind of a status in front of people where they're well known and honored and liked, those who are honored by their Lord in public usually have to endure a secret chastisement or to carry a peculiar cross, lest by any means they would exalt themselves and fall into the snare of the devil. Our depressions whisper in our ears. They tell us not to be mistaken that we are but men, frail, feeble, and apt to faint. And what's crazy is he says that last sentence in an extremely positive way. We say that sentence now and we say, don't listen to your depressions. They tell you that you're feeble. They tell you that you're going to fail. They tell you that you're weak. Don't listen to those voices in your head when they show up. And Charles Spurgeon thanks God for those voices that come and remind him of what is really true about him. That no matter how many people may pack into his church every Sunday morning to hear him preach, and it was like, Mega churches before mega churches is what Charles Spurgeon was, was preaching in. People just pouring into his church, no matter how many people came, no matter how many people might want to call him the Prince of Preachers, that weakness in him whispered in his ear what he knew to be true, that he is weak and frail and that he's dependent on something greater, apt to faint. Number two, second reason why weakness can actually be a good thing. Weakness causes us to rely on God. That's what it says in verse 9. This is what Jesus said to me. My grace is sufficient for you. That's what weakness helped Paul understand, that he could lean into Jesus. But do you remember actually 
I don't know if you do or not. The very first chapter, our very first night, Paul said this statement almost exactly that his weakness caused him to rely on God. This is what he says, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8-9. through 9. He's talking about the difficulty that he was experiencing before he finally heard back from the Corinthian people. Verse 8, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But listen to this sentence. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. That's why God let us go there so that we would stop trusting in ourselves, but instead we rely on Him. Christianity is a system that is built on faith. Faith, and and by faith we do not mean, as so many think it to mean, mental assent. I agree with that. I believe that. I believe that Jesus is God. I believe that He died on a cross. That's, That's part of it, but that's not all we mean by faith. We mean trust. We mean a trusting in Jesus as the Son of God, trusting in Him as my Savior, depending on Him as my Savior and as my King. It is dependence. Jesus says, you cannot enter my kingdom unless you enter it like a little child, someone who does not have enough in themselves and knows it. That's the kind of person who's allowed to come into my kingdom. That's the only way in. You've heard us give this quote multiple times from Alistair Begg this year because it fits so well with this book, but Alistair Begg says this, if dependence is the goal, then weakness is an advantage. If dependence is the goal, and it is if you're a Christian, then weakness is an advantage. Last week we were sitting up here doing our Q&A time and Sharon sat right here and answered this question, what, I, what, what do I do about anxiety in my life? And Sharon, I thought, had some really wise words. Uh, I hope it was something that was beneficial for you to get to hear her talk. And I hope you listened to her well. And I hope you went home and tried to put into practice some of the things she said. And I hope that you prayed about the anxiety that you might be experiencing in your life. But have you ever considered, for those of you in here who actually deal with anxiety or deal with some form of depression, or some form of panic that you can't seem to get under control. Have you ever considered that your anxiety might be one of your greatest advantages in honoring Jesus? In your sanctification, that it might be one of your greatest advantages in whatever ministry Jesus might give to you. I I, I hope that... um, If that's you, if you're someone who deals with anxiety in them, who struggles to overcome those things, or depression, or whatever it is, I would encourage you to do this. Pray and ask God to take that from you. And if He doesn't, pray and ask God how He wants to use that in you. That perhaps it is in this weakness that you wish you never had to experience that Jesus wants to reveal Himself most fully in you and through you third reason that weakness can actually be a good thing. Weakness helps us to experience and display Christ's power in our lives. Verse 9, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. 
It is that it will dwell on me, that it will live on me, that I get to experience it in my weakness, Paul says. Um, and, and it gets to be displayed. But, but he says something almost identical to this in 2 Corinthians 4. 2 Corinthians 4, 7. But we have this treasure, that's the gospel, that's the good news about Jesus. We have this treasure in jars of clay, that's Paul's feeble and frail body, if you remember. That's what he's talking about, his own kind of weak, fragile body he calls a jar of clay. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. That's why I'm weak, Paul says. That's why I come to you unimpressive, so that no one gets confused and everyone can see that this surpassing power comes from God and not from us. This is actually, if you read through 2 Corinthians and in 1 Corinthians, this is all over Paul's thinking. He talks about this all the time, this idea that it is in our frailty that God's power gets shown off. But this theme is not just his, this theme runs all the way throughout Scripture. We miss it a lot of times because of the way we preach about Scripture. Because the way your Sunday school teachers and the way preachers sometimes talk, they'll, they'll come to a story like David and Goliath and they'll teach through David and Goliath and say, see, this is how you ought to be able to be strong and brave like David was. This is how you face the giants in your own life. And they pull some principles out of that story to show you how you, like David, can face down your giants and be brave and strong. Completely overlooking the fact that the whole point of the story is not what David is able to accomplish, but the fact that God can save his own people from their enemies, even through a little shepherd boy. David was the one that when Samuel is there to go anoint a king and his brothers keep walking up one by one, Samuel goes, this guy's it. This dude is strong. This dude is brave looking. This dude is manly looking. And one by one, they walk past and God says, no, no. And then David walks up. They forget to even bring David because surely not David. And then they bring David and Samuel's like, I don't know about this, but God's like, that's the one. The unimpressive one. And God can use even that shepherd boy to save his people. We tell stories about Abraham, about how you ought to be able to have faith and trust God like Abraham and be obedient like Abraham, which is true. Abraham is this amazing example of faith, but we overlook the fact that uh, Abraham, by his lack of trust and by his fear and his disobedience, almost wrecked the plan, as if that was possible, that God had had to start this new people through Abraham. This, this brand new group of descendants that would eventually be Israel. Three different occasions, Abraham almost completely screwed it up. And then these two words come in, but God. But God, in spite of who Abraham was, was still able to bring his plan into fruition. It's the reason that God calls like a really old dude to have, to like give birth to this son Isaac who will be the, the people of Israel. Because no one is able to say, Abraham started God's people. You don't start a people you don't start a family when you're 100 and your wife is 90. Doesn't work that way. God started his people in spite of the old bodies that he used to do that. Or Moses, who says to God when he's called to go to Pharaoh, I can't talk well enough to go talk to him. And God says, who made your mouth? I made your mouth. You go because I'm going with you. Or Gideon, who God calls to go save them from the Midianites. And we say, you've got to be brave and face your fears like Midian and, or like Gideon. And, and Gideon says, not me. I'm, 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 I'm from the weakest tribe of Manasseh. And my, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh. And I'm the least in my family. And God says, it doesn't matter. It's not you who's going to be doing all of this. And he sends Gideon. And then he doesn't even let Gideon like, fight hardly. You remember that battle plan? 
like a torch, a pot, and a trumpet. That's what everybody gets. And that's how they win. It's, so no one is ever going to say, because of Gideon's incredible like, battle strategy, they won that thing. Because of Gideon's strength and fierceness, they won that. No, no. God intentionally set it up where it would be known that it was not the weakness of man, but it was the power of God that accomplished these things. That's, that's the theme that runs all the way throughout Scripture. There are a number of you in here, a number of you young ladies in here, who if I gave you the chance to stand up and talk about it, you could stand up and talk for quite a while uh, about Rachel and about the way that she has impacted your life. For some of you in here, um, knowing her and the encouragement that she's given you and the way that she's prayed with you and the way that she has discipled you or the things you've heard her teach up here has been like a game changer for you and and literally life-changing. And you were a different person because you've got to interact with her. And there are a number of you in here who could say very similar things about Scott. But the way that Scott has been able to walk you through some of the more difficult periods of your life as you're wrestling with what to do next, what decision to make, or how to interact with someone in your family who's causing you problems. It used to be something that bugged me a little bit that after the table, there'd be like one person coming to talk to me and then a line of people waiting around the room to talk to Scott. Um, now I'm cool with it. It's totally okay. But literally, if someone, if someone wants to know something like obscure theological, like what's the beast in Revelation 13 they'll come talk to me if someone wants to know what to do with their life they'll come talk to Scott Okay, that's how that works and there's a lot of you in here who, who have been deeply impacted by the wisdom of Scott or by the, uh, the leading of Scott as he has worked through things with him you could stand up and you could describe the way that you've been changed by your interaction with him and there might be one or two of you who could say something nice about me and what I've done Um, I haven't screwed you up too much or something. I don't know. Um, But if whatever, whatever ministry has taken place in this building or outside of this building, if, um, if you can't see uh, beyond Rachel, if you can't see through Scott or myself to the power um, of God working in your life, then, then either A, you're blind, or B, we're doing it wrong. If, if, if you only can see what Rachel is doing in your life and, and you're not able to see the goodness of God working through her, and you're not able to see the way that He is shaping you through Rachel, and her, even her limitations and even her weaknesses, if you're not able to see that in Scott, if you're not able to see that through me, then we're doing ministry in some kind of way that is wrong, that is obscuring God's power and strength and work by trying to make it look like it's us, like it's our cleverness, like it's my ability to know stuff about the Bible that's really changing you, like it's Scott's ability to be wise or, or Rachel's ability to be spiritual that's really changing you. We're obscuring what is really true or even worse than that, even worse than that, that it really is just our ability and strength that's changing you. That's the worst possible thing I could ever... That's my, that's my nightmare, to find out at the end of my life that whatever change was taking place through my ministry was just me and me alone. And so I hope, my prayer is, that in our own ministry, that you would be able to see our weakness and our feebleness, um, that you would be able to know... Um, 
to know. Um, trying to even figure out how much I should share with you right now um, about my own my own weakness and my own uh, frailties in my life that that should hinder me in so many ways from being able to do ministry properly. Um, and and maybe uh, maybe that'll have to be for another time because we've talked for a while. But um, my hope is that you would be able to to look. Um, through this and see God at work in his strength and power. And, and my prayer is that you would be the kind of people that, that, that when others encounter you, that they are not greatly impressed by you. That they don't walk away talking about you. Um, that they walk away talking about God at work in you. That they talk about what they experienced of Jesus, even through you. Even through somebody like you as lowly and as weak or as whatever as you might be, um, that whatever weakness God may have given you, that it would be something that, not that you try to pursue, not that you, not that you try and find more of, not that you try to suffer more, no, no, no. By all means, if you feel led to, pray for God to deliver you from that weakness. Pray for God to remove that thorn for you. But if He does not, I pray that you would bring to God the same kind of words that Paul does in 2 Corinthians 12, verses 9 through 10. And I can think of no better way to end this than just with these words, asking and hoping that these would be our words to Jesus this night. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And therefore... I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Let me pray. Dear Father, I just, I know how uh, my own tendency to try to build an identity by what other people think of me and to try to be impressive and uh, I hate to think of how many times maybe I've gotten in the way of people seeing you and your goodness and uh, I don't, I don't long for us to try and make up weaknesses or to try and pretend like we're worse than we are or, or, or to try and find suffering. I don't, I don't long for that but but I do long for that, that your power would be displayed in our lives. And whether that power is displayed by you delivering us from our weaknesses and frailties, or that power is displayed by you sustaining us in those things. I pray that we would be the kind of people, I pray for the students in here, those who have dealt with um, issues of anxiety or, or things from their past or or difficulties in their personality or in their intelligence or whatever it is that for years they have pleaded to be taken away or, or wanted to be different about themselves, Lord, that you would show them tonight in a very real way that your grace is sufficient for them and that you would use their weaknesses to show your great power to them and to the world around them for your name's sake. And in the name of Jesus, I ask that. Amen.
let's let this down. 